So please, let's understand that John the Baptist did, in fact, pave the way for Jesus. There was a response to his message. The people around Jesus then drawn to him and to his message were those who had recognized their need for repentance. It doesn't mean they were all believers. Right? But they were ones who were willing, had been willing to hear that and recognize that God is just and that they had not met that holy standard. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. You can abandon that stuff as long as the message stays the same. So John had one external presentation. He's coming like Elijah. He's out in the wilderness. He's wearing, you know, this rough clothing. He's eating strange food because that matched the message and the nature of the forerunner that he was. Jesus is going to come dressed much like the scribes and Pharisees, as we will see. He's going to, he's going to eat and drink the, the, the food of the day. That's essentially what that means. And yet his message is the same as John's, repent. He's, the way he's approaching the message of the externals matched the way that Jesus needed to, uh, to promote or the way that Jesus needed to present his message. Be very careful of tying in anything that we do to certain externals. It has to look like this or it has to look like this. Instead, what we're looking to say is, how do those externals enable us to properly bring the message so that it might be heard? Next, the impact of John the Baptist. All right, so that's his description. Really, we get his description because we're supposed to see, and the people did see, this is a prophet like Elijah. This is the true forerunner. This is the rough man out in the wilderness because this is the Old Testament prophet proclaiming repentance. Well, now we have his impact. Did this, was this effective? And not so much was, again, the means of the message effective, but when John is, is, is telling them to repent, when he's letting them know that you're not in the kingdom, you're going to have to recognize your sinfulness, even as Jews, and you're going to have to humble your hearts and repent. Did this have an impact? Well, it did. It had a tremendous impact. It had first, it's described in kind of a geographical way. This tells you how big the impact was in geographical terms. It says in verse 5, then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. John had a large impact around a, a, rel- a relatively large area around Jerusalem. This is in, remember, this is southern Israel. Okay, uh, uh, the, where he was baptizing in the Jordan is probably a little bit north of Jerusalem. And, but all that district on both sides of the Jordan seem to be indicated here. All, I guess generally the idea is all of southern Palestine, all of southern Israel is going out to John. The word is spreading. And they're going out in the wilderness to see. And what they were going out to see, Jesus says in Matthew eleven seven. As the disciples of John were going away after asking their question, are you the right one? He then talks to the crowds about John and he says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? You went out to see a man whose message was strong. Really, in this case, whose appearance was strong, who was coming like an Old Testament prophet. That was part of what he was doing so that 
The Lord might use that message in the hearts of the people. You went out to see uh, an Old Testament prophet, one proclaiming, making prophetic proclamation to you about repentance. That's who you went to see. And the Lord used that to have great impact. It was affecting all the surrounding area. They were coming to him. And clearly here, the Spirit of God is at work. Because it is the Spirit of God who draws us out of our comfort zone, who causes us to go see things or listen to things or respond to things that we wouldn't respond to at all. But we're given in this text that there is much more than just a geographical impact. Because certainly there are are times, and even for Jesus and for John, where there were lots of people coming. For Jesus, the first part of his ministry had huge crowds and people coming from everywhere. That in and of itself is not necessarily significant or or representative of the true spiritual impact that is being made. Because oftentimes there's a big crowd and nobody's changing. But look what's going on here. There seems to be a matching between the people who were coming and then those who were being baptized. It says they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. There was true repentance going on here. That seems to be the indication from this text. They were really repenting. They recognized their need. They recognized that they were sinful. John's message by the Spirit of God (coughs) was getting through to them, and so they were confessing their sin. They were making it evident and open, and as a result of that confession, they were being baptized. It's almost as though they would come down to the river, they would make proclamation, I'm a sinner. I have sinned before only God. I have not met his standard. And John would say, he doesn't give us the words that he said, but on the basis of that, I baptize you. The external representation of that internal heart decision to repent. That's what John's doing. That is the baptism of John. So it says that there's this great geographical impact, but it was more than that. Because this was a true spiritual revival. He was truly the forerunner to the king. And the king made sure that the forerunner was effective through the power of the Spirit of God using the message and people were repenting. Because remember, that's the mountain that has to be removed. If people will not recognize their sin, and again, not just mentally acknowledge, we've talked about that, but truly desire in their hearts to make a change, their mind, their will, their affections, proclaiming the, the proclamation of it merely being the, be the, being the proclamation of what was going on in their hearts, if that's, not, if that's not dealt with, then there is no accepting of the king. But in this case, they were. They were being baptized as they confessed their sins. Now, let's talk for a minute about baptism. We're going to talk some more about it. So I'm just going to get this discussion started. Remember, all the way through Matthew, we are making layers. Right? We're talking about various things. We'll pick them up at different times. Right? What kind of, what was the mode of this baptism? Let's just explore that for just a minute. Well, if we look into our text, it says he was going to the district, or he was he was he was baptizing. They were being baptized by him where? In the Jordan River. Right? And I, I think that's significant. It wasn't even on the banks of the Jordan River. It wasn't by the Jordan River. It was in the Jordan. Why in? Well, I think that speaks to the mode. I think it speaks pretty strongly to the mode. Why go into the water unless you're going to be immersed in it? Now, it could be that they walked into the water, I guess, and then he poured it on their heads. Right? That's possible. But that doesn't seem to be either the picture or, really, what, why does he need to be at the Jordan? You could find other water and pour it. You could sprinkle in other ways. Right? But they are actually going into the Jordan. He's baptizing there. This is kind of made a little more clear for us in John 3.23. It says Jesus was baptizing in Aenean near Salim because there was much water there. Right? And the people were coming and were being baptized. Again, it seems the issue is he needed much water. Why? Well, so that he could immerse them and he takes them down and he brings them back up. Now, the meaning of the word itself points to that also. And again, we'll talk more about this. Right, but in general, the, the general meaning of the word is to immerse in, to immerse into. 
Right? It is used in other ways, right? And sometimes not a full immersion, but that seems to be the general picture of the word itself, matching that with where he's actually baptizing and, and what he seems to be doing, pretty clearly from our text, they're going into the water, right? they're being baptized by him as they confess their sins. And then even if you look in Mark 1.10, this is Jesus' baptism, and we'll see that in, in Matthew verse 13 here in a minute, 3.13, or in a couple of weeks. It says, immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open, the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now that could be referring to his walking up out of the Jordan. It could be that. It seems like it's more related to he comes up out of the water. He was in the water. He's now out of it. So all of those things, and I'm just getting this discussion started. All of those seem, things seem to be strongly pointing towards immersion, going down into the water and back up as the proper mode or the biblical mode of baptism. I'd say one other thing that also seems to match well the picture of scripture. It says in Romans 6, 3, it says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And that's not talking about water baptism. That's talking about being becoming unified with Christ. You're coming into Christ. But again, Water baptism is the picture of what is going on spiritually, which is described in Romans 6. You're being united with Christ in his death, and then you're united with him in his resurrection. So it seems even the mode of baptism pictures that down into the water and back up. There is a death and a resurrection. So for all of those reasons, I would argue initially at this point right, that what is that John's mode of baptism was immersion, down into the water and back up. He's in the Jordan. There has to be much water. People are coming up out of the water. They're going into the water and back out, and that also matches the picture of what is actually happening in our spiritual lives when we come to Christ. And baptism, remember, is that external symbol of what is going on in our hearts as we have repented and believed. So that's just getting that discussion started. Now, another thing to ask, though, is, and this, is, this should be on your mind, where did baptism come from? Why is he baptizing? Because we don't have baptism in the Old Testament that we see. So John comes baptizing. Is this some Jewish custom that he's doing? Where did he get this from? Well, again, we'll just get this started this morning, but my, what, what I would say is presented in Scripture is that, no, this is a new custom. It's new to Christianity. We'll argue later that it's ongoing in Christianity. We're starting here with just the baptism of John. Right? We'll start with that. But that John introduces this under the influence of the Spirit of God as, as the means by which, the external means by which it is demonstrated that people have truly come to Christ. They've truly come into the kingdom. Starts here with John. Now, there's some other places where people say, well, baptism might have come from this. The Pharisees had numerous ritual washings. The idea of cleansing was common. But these were ongoing. They weren't immersion. They, and, and you did them all the time, every day before every meal. The Essenes, who were a, a group of ascetics that probably looked a lot like John the Baptist. In fact, they lived in the wilderness, probably pretty close to where John was. Some people say he was an Essene. I don't think that's, there's any evidence for that. They, their religious beliefs were aberrant. They, they weren't they, they didn't fully hold to the proper understanding of either the prophecies or ultimately of Scripture, the Old Testament. But nonetheless, they had a ritual baptism. Some say, well, maybe it came from that. But again, these ceremonial washings were ongoing. They were repeated, in fact, several times a day or even hourly because they every time you sinned, essentially, you had to do this again. And so for the Essenes, you were constantly being baptized, as it were. So it doesn't match that directly. And then the only other thing that seems to be closest to it is uh, Jewish proselyte baptism. That was a one-time baptism. It was generally an immersion, and it was for those who were in Gentile cultures who wanted to enter into Israel. They wanted to come under the God of Israel, essentially to be called Jews. 
And so the way that happened is they were baptized into the faith, as it were, this external symbol that they were coming underneath the God of Israel. That did happen. And yet, this can't be exactly that baptism, of course, because what's happening here? It's not Gentiles being baptized into the Jewish religion. It is what? It's Jews being baptized. And of course, that's what makes this so shocking. The Jews to come, and actually the the repentance necessary is almost a double repentance here. They have to recognize that being Jews themselves, that's not sufficient. That they are, their standard isn't sufficient, their ethnicity isn't sufficient, and in fact, this external symbol, this baptism, actually gets them into the kingdom when they made everybody else do that. Now, if you want to get into our kingdom, if you want to get into the, the true Jewish kingdom, you have to get baptized. And now John is coming saying, uh, you have to be baptized. Of course, this expands out to all people, both Jews and Gentiles. Because it's not entering into the ethnic kingdom of Israel at this point. It is entering into God's kingdom, his rule over the hearts and lives of men, his salvational kingdom, as it were. So the Jews had to enter into that kingdom as well. So it seems like, I think clearly from scripture, this is a new thing. This baptism is new. It's a representation then of the repentance of the heart that recognizes sin, a desire to turn from that, a confession of sin, because that's what they were doing. They were coming and stating, they were agreeing with John first, and then with the Old Testament principles, the law that John was preaching. We see that in other places. When they come and say, what does it mean? You know, now that we've repented, what do we do? Stop sinning is what he tells them. (laughs) Obey the law. Do what God has said. And then that's why we're going to see the necessity of the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Because, again, you can't fully obey the law. But he comes telling them, you have to obey. And they come saying, we agree, we've sinned, we don't meet the standard. We repent of that sin. Now, this has its roots, the idea of confession here. It says he was baptizing them as they confessed. And in Luke 16, 21, we kind of get a picture of this in the sacrificial system. It says, then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of a live goat, the scapegoat, as it were, and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to their sins. Now, why do that? I mean, doesn't God know our sins? Isn't it enough just to say, all right, we're sinners? Again, God seems to have established a process by which we recognize our own sin and by which we express our agreement with him that we have, in fact, sinned. These are real sins. We are agreeing with that. We're stating that. That doesn't necessarily have to come out in spoken or audible words, but certainly this is something that we have to agree with. The confession, and it's made evident as Aaron lays his hand on the goat and confesses the sins. We've sinned in this way, in this way, in this way. God, we agree with you. Your law is true. We've broken it. And he does that openly, sends that goat off into the wilderness. Well, Psalm 32, 5, when David has, is stricken by his sin, he says this, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Uh, Essentially, if you could put it this way, confession is the visible sign of repentance. If my heart is truly changed, then I am more than willing to express. In fact, I desire to express that, God, I agree with you that that was wrong. And if someone, you know, I've repented. Well, did, did, did you sin? No. I mean, think about with your children. Doesn't that happen? And you tell them, you're supposed to say you're sorry. Well, well you know, was what you did wrong? Sure. Yes, maybe. And then you, then you say, well, you need to go talk to your brother and sister. You need to go express that. And they'll go, and oftentimes, they'll even, they won't even, they'll say, I'm sorry. Well, what are you sorry for? I'm, I'm just sorry. Maybe I'm sorry that I hit you. I'm sorry that I hurt you. Is that really the sin? That's not really the issue. You want them to confess. You want them to give verbal testimony that they agree with you about the thing you are calling sin. 
And it isn't as though the testimony itself changes their heart. The heart was changed, when, and, and they can express it. They're supposed to express that by saying, this is what I did. Of course, understand that the verbal expression isn't the guarantee that the heart has changed. But I tell you this, if there's no willingness to express, I was wrong, I sinned, this is what I did, God, I agree with you, then, then there's not repentance in the heart. So you can't say, I'm really repentant, but I, I'm not going to tell anybody. And if you tell me about it, well, no, I, I disagree with you. So that's the idea with confession, that they are agreeing. David said it this way, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't hide it. Lord, this is what I did. This is what I've done. This is who I am. That's confession, and that's go, it goes along with repentance. So they were expressing their repentance in their confession, and then the external representation of that was the baptism, going down into the water and back up. That was the, 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 the symbol of their cleansing, right? What had already happened in the heart. Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And again, notice the idea of concealing it. I won't tell anybody about it. I'm not going to say anything. Right? Well, the, the, the confessing of it, the acknowledging of it, shows that the heart truly is repentant. Now, you've probably already been thinking in the New Testament where this is affirmed, 1 John 1, 9. You know this verse. You've known it since you were little. It says what? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We see this, I think, rightfully so. It's an expression of what happens at conversion. I said, I've sinned against a holy God, and we confess that. But we see that for the believer, it's an ongoing work. That's really what 1 John 1, 9 is talking about. That's we, we continually acknowledge to God that he is right about our sin and that we remain sinners. Why else do we come on Sunday morning and have a prayer of confession? Because we are acknowledging to God that, we, that when we, we have sinned, we've broken his law, that that violates his nature, that we hate that, that we're grieved. It's, a, it's the public proclamation of our heart repentance. That's what confession is. We are, and we are called to do that on a continual basis, even after we come to Christ, because we are expressing, it, it's a way of humbling ourselves and, and expressing the truth that we have actually repented. We confess our sins. And really the word itself, right, bound up in that word, it is an agreement with. I agree, God, with your righteous standard that I have violated it, and I'm confessing. I'm telling you that. I'm acknowledging that that is true. So the purpose then of John's baptism, at the mode is immersion. Where does it come from? It's a new thing. That, that is something instituted for, for uh, at the time of the coming of the king, right? and as we will see, as I will argue later on, an ongoing, uh, an ongoing ordinance that travels throughout and that we do today, right? that started with John the Baptist and then continues. Right? But it's a new thing instituted as the means to demonstrate the reality of repentance in the heart and the cleansing that God brings as a result of that. The external act indicating the reality of their desire for repentance as they confessed with their mouths in this case. Now, just again, a reminder as we begin to, to wind down on, on what this baptism would have been for the Jews. This was a radical challenge to them, as I mentioned, in two ways. First, that they had to recognize their sin, but also that they weren't in, in the kingdom simply by nature of their ethnicity. And look back again at Matthew 3. And we know that they were truly, that they were thinking that this was the case, at least the religious leaders were, because look what he says in verse 9 or verse 8 and 9. When the Pharisees and Sadducees come, he calls them a brood of vipers. 
And he says, don't suppose, verse 9, that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Don't come and be baptized. Don't, don't come and say that you are repentant when you don't even believe you need it. He's calling them out. Say, so this, is, this is a show. You don't believe you're sinners, and you don't believe that you aren't actually in the kingdom because you're Jews. Because they were holding, he goes, even if you come, if I dunk you, if I put you under the water, you haven't changed your heart. So get out of here. There's no reality to what you are doing when you come. But I want you to notice that he didn't tell that to the majority of the people. The vast majority of those who came were actually repenting. This was, again, it's a work of God. God was at work. And so in their hearts, when they come, he goes, confess your sins. They did. He baptizes them. The scribes and Pharisees come and he goes, stop, hold it. You're not truly repentant. You who told you to come? You are coming simply so that you can continue to have your influence over the people. You continue to look good religiously in their eyes. This is the new religious fad, right? This baptism by John. And the, and the scribes and Pharisees are like, well, we'll do whatever it takes. We'll cover that next week. But, but again, to the vast majority of people who were coming, those coming from this geographical region, they were truly repenting. And this was the groundwork necessary for the, the receiving of the king, the belief in Jesus. John MacArthur says, John's washing was one time. The only one time washing the Jews performed was for Gentiles, signifying their coming as outsiders into the true faith of Judaism. A Jew who submitted to such a rite demonstrated in effect that he was an outsider who sought entrance into the people of God. This was an amazing admission for a Jew. Members of God's chosen race, descendants of Abraham, heirs of the covenant of Moses, came to John to be baptized like Gentiles. And again, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how odious that would have been to the Jews, how much they hated and thought themselves superior to Gentiles. We'll see this all throughout the book of Matthew. They wouldn't even, they wouldn't even go into Samaria, half Jews. They wouldn't even step into Samaria. That's, that place is tainted. We won't even go there. The ethnic arrogance of the Jews of this time was tremendous. And so this is, uh, this, this is true repentance. If they would come and be baptized, when that was when it was a true reflection of their heart. Jesus insists that one's ancestry was not adequate to ensure one's relationship with God. And it's often been put, God has no grandchildren. Our parents' religious affiliation, our church's religious affiliation, none of those things will substitute for a true personal repentance. John the Baptist then truly was a great prophet, was he not? He truly was used by God to have an incredible impact on the people. He was the right forerunner, and he did accomplish the work that was necessary for the forerunner to come. As we close, I want to show you the nature of how John's work prepared the way for Christ in such a way that the rest of his ministry is based upon it. The rest of the ministry of Christ is based upon the work of John. And, and John's ministry wasn't all that long. We don't know exactly how long he's here in the wilderness proclaiming right? Months probably. Jesus comes and he continues his work, but then eventually John's work ends when he's put in prison. So from this, from this ministry, from this forerunner who only ministers for a year, maybe, maybe a little bit more, how much work is actually done? Turn to Luke chapter 7. This is fascinating and not much, much mentioned, but very important. Now, it goes along directly. We wouldn't even need Luke 7 in essence, to look at the fact that it was John that laid the groundwork in bringing the people by the Spirit of God to repentance, a large number of them. But again, Luke 7 kind of gives us a, a unique window into what this actually accomplished. In Luke chapter 7, verse 28, 
Again, here's where the disciples of John have come and are you the right one? Because it doesn't look like the kingdom is coming right now. And Jesus says, look, the king is here. All the things the king is supposed to do, I'm doing. I am the right one. You didn't get it wrong. And then as they leave, he says, verse 28, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Referring to his character, yes, but I think referring to his unique nature as the herald and the unique impact that he had to actually prepare the way for the king. Because then it goes on to say, it says, yet he was in who he was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The issue is to be in, in the kingdom of heaven is the most important thing. But then he goes on to say this. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice. Now, this is fascinating. When all the people, that is all the people who were around, all the people who were part of Jesus' general work and ministry at that time, all those people around say, that's right, God is just. We acknowledge his justice. And then it gives the reason why having been baptized with the baptism of John. And now the contrast in verse 30, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. You, you see what the, what the work of John the Baptist did. And then prepared a whole group of people who recognized their sin, who recognized the justice of God in relationship to their own sinfulness, who had agreed with it truly, and then were baptized by John as a representation of that. And those were the ones to whom Jesus was ministering. Those tax gatherers and sinners that Jesus hung around, what kind of tax gatherers and sinners were they? Repentant ones. That's exactly what that says. All of those around him were those who recognized that they were sinners before a holy God. The reason that I point that out is this is really important because people remove the initial message of repentance from the preaching of the gospel. And what they say is, look, just go hang out with people. You go to the bars, you hang out with them. You, you know, you, the world, you, you make sure you remove any overt references to Christ or repentance or sin so that people will be comfortable and then you'll win them to Christ. Jesus didn't do that. Because when he came, he had already had his forerunner, the one that strongly proclaimed repentance. And the, re the people that stuck around, the people that were actually impacted by that, were those who Jesus ministered to, the ones that actually recognized their need. The scribes and Pharisees, as, as he says, and as we'll see in, in, in Matthew 3, they, they wanted nothing to do with it. So guys, when you proclaim the message of repentance, it prepares then those who stick around when they hear that true message. When you call them out to, to that standard and say, the king is coming, you need the king, you've fallen short of his standard, you're going to spend eternity in hell away from him because you have not reached his perfect righteousness. The people that will stay and listen to you, those are the ones that you continue to minister to. We don't simply go out. And, and when you go out, if you're going to go out into a bar, or you're going to go, and that's, I'm not saying I recommend that. If you're going to go out into the world, well, that's fine. You want, you want to set up your little pulpit there? You want to sit around that table? And you want to look every one of those men or women in the eye and say, the reason that I'm here is that I have a message from the king to proclaim, and that is that you have fallen short of the, the work of the king, that you are destined for eternal hell, that there's nothing you can do on your own, that you must repent, that you must recognize the abject nature of your sinfulness and turn from that before we can have any discussions. Before there's anything else worth talking about, that's the issue. What do you think? Well, maybe if anybody sticks at the table, you might be able to present them the truth of who God is. And it's not it's not unrepentant sinners who are going to spend a lot of time around you when you're making that proclamation. If you come out of, if you come out of a, a lifestyle, of a sinful lifestyle as an older person, and, and you, you know exactly what that looks like, don't you? You start proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is, and your so-called friends run because they want nothing to do with repentance. So please, let's understand that John the Baptist did, in fact, pave the way for Jesus 
There was a response to his message. The people around Jesus then drawn to him and to his message were those who had recognized their need for repentance. It doesn't mean they were all believers. Right? But they were ones who were willing, had been willing to hear that and recognize that God is just and that they had not met that holy standard. And, and I tell you that that is the travesty of the way the gospel is presented so often today. It is this travesty of a church that will not proclaim repentance, hoping that the world will somehow be suckered into the message by the, by the good things presented, by the health, wealth, and prosperity that's presented. All of those things those are false conversions. It's a false presentation of the gospel. It does not properly prepare the ground. And then what happens is the people get harder and harder to the message itself. It's devastating. And what we've seen in church growth movements over the past 20 or 30 years are not laying the groundwork for Jesus to come. They are closing hearts, even though some are saved in those ministries in in the short term. It is deadly. And it is not how Jesus came. He came with the forerunner who proclaimed repentance. And that's who we're to be. Would it be that we, now we must proclaim Jesus. We must proclaim the truth of what he has done, the nature of the hope that is found in him. But the way is paved through repentance. We need to be that church. We need to be those people. And we need to continue to develop churches and, 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 and press into the world with this strategy. We proclaim the need for repentance and then we proclaim the one who provides that need and who helps us, who enables us to meet that standard. So so the questions I have as I finish are this. What does God's word say that you ought to be doing and are you doing it? Not simply what do you think you ought to do or how do you want to live your own life? John the Baptist was living according to what God told him to do. He was living his life according to those things that God had given him to do. Is that how you're living your life? The next question I might ask is, how is your lifestyle carefully pursued for maximum impact in the kingdom of God? Not maximum impact, you know, in in getting along with your friends. Not maximum impact in about fitting in with a certain group. Not maximum impact even to show how unique you are by repelling everybody else. That's not what John was doing. Are you living your life, everything about who you are, maximized for your impact in the kingdom of God where God has placed you? And then what kind of impact are you making for his kingdom? Through living and proclaiming the gospel message, repent and believe. Are you making an impact? Let's assess that this week. Let's let's, let's hope and pray that as we press forward, we will never have on our tombstone, he departed with no one's regret. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would Give us grace and and wisdom to understand the truth of your word, that you would illuminate to our hearts, that you would grant us your power to desire to obey it and to actually live out our faith. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to have the bold message that your forerunner came with, that John the Baptist came with, that we would be willing to proclaim the absolute necessity of repentance, of recognizing our sinfulness. And as we do so, that we would then also proclaim the truth of the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And as we present that message, that we would see many turning to you, that our church would, would live that message and, and speak that message, that we as individuals would, that we might have the impact, whatever impact you have for us, that we would, would rejoice in, what, in the work, the fruit that you would provide as we do things according to the truth of your word so that your name would be properly proclaimed. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.
Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.